Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversation about belonging and otherness. Each program will reach for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist with Emma Troop, an experimental theater group in New York City, and I am here with my co-host, Polly Young Eisendratt, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teaching of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. This is Gary Jevitt, and I will be joining our host, Polly Young Eisendrath and Eleanor Johnson for part two of a discussion about the fear of death. But you have no fear or you fear it? I don't have fear. fear. No, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that I'm not going to hurt or suffer or cry or be uncomfortable or any of that, but I don't have any fear. No, I don't. I have fear that I might not meet the challenges of being a better human being in this lifetime. That's very important to me how I live this lifetime determines my relationship to death and consciousness. To the end yeah. of, of that striving. Right, right, yeah. right. That's just how it's been for me my entire life and that consciousness is the ultimate ground of all being and everything is consciousness. Well, it, it turns out yeah. from That's what, just, you know, what yeah. Gary was saying, all of us will go through a life review. It appears. Yes, yes. It appears. Whether you're a Buddhist or a Christian or a Jew or a Native American. Well, now well, you, we, we haven't now actually we know, talked about this no, life review. Yeah, but no, I know. Yeah. I've got to talk about it now yeah. because I wanted to talk first about, you know, what is death, why we should or shouldn't fear it, and what it offers us as an opportunity yeah. for development. Because the fear is in that life review. Because if you've not lived a noble life or a good life or a kind life, or you've been you've lived through selfishness and greed and violence and you've hurt other people, then you know you're going to have a harder time in your life review than if you've not. I mean, from my point of view, that's very personal. Right. Well, for, yeah, well, there's there's now scientific information, quite a lot on the life review, which makes it a very specific thing, different from maybe what we thought. It's not like a review of your narrative, but from what they're finding, what happens like in our day-to-day -day existence, we exist in this snow globe or this kind of bubble, and there are other familiar people in here, like there's an Eleanor, there's a Gary, I mean, Chris comes and goes. I don't really know Chris that well. But so the people that are in your bubble with you, when you go through their life review, you experience mm -hmm. their thoughts and feelings and pain yes. and so on that you created, mm -hmm. or their joy and happiness and expansiveness mm -hmm. that you created. Mm -hmm. So this very encapsulated life review because it's happening outside of space-time, may seem to be only three seconds long, but it's comprehensive of all of the ways your speech and actions have affected people around you, not only people, but animals and so on. And so you jump into, your consciousness is never just located in yourself. It's never located just in your bag of skin. Well, that's a very important 
piece to understand. Right. Well, you know, we were well, understanding the Book it of now. the Dead opens that up in a very, very detailed way. Yes, although I have to say it doesn't give as precise information as well, these Well, it was written a while ago. It yeah, was written right. at a number. It was from no, another no, time. No, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not criticizing yeah. it. I'm simply saying that I think we need to be aware that the evidence that wonderful spiritual practitioners have brought everyone from Jesus to Tibetan masters about what happens after death, that, right. evidence, that evidence has been anecdotal. And so it's been the bubble telling this is so now we've got a lot of bubbles telling us we have a lot of evidence and one of the big things that's coming out that is I think extremely important is understanding what life review is and how close it's it sounds to what the Buddhists teach about karma would it uh, well speaking personally knowing it that there is or isn't a life review would not necessarily affect my fear or not fear per se, but it would be a landmark if I know that I'm expecting it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you might, you know, clean up your act. I mean, That's like right. people, you know, are affecting each other by their intentional actions. Right. I mean, so the, you know, in the teaching in Buddhism is that your intentional actions mm. are leading constantly to the construction of your life, not in a way that if you're good, you know, you're going to get everything you want. It's not like that at all. But the what you're creating dynamically between you and other people is what you are experiencing. And in the life review, you experience from all of the different points of view the effects of your actions on other consciousnesses. Well, again, it, the, 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 the coherence between self and other the consciousness they're never between, separated yes between you and the other exchanging self for other to have that relationship to the other changes the whole narrative well yeah it because does. we it live really so does. so so self-contained and it's all the i i i and you're separated but when you're when you're not separated from the other well, uh, let's say you know, you know plays a very different you know just changes things dramatically well let's say in this period of time 20th century 21st century we've been very materialistic very greedy very oriented very selfish what can i accumulate yes. for myself so there are people with grotesque wealth who seem to be feted by the media as though this is a good thing to have all the divine these, right of kings, these yachts and these airplanes and these whatever palaces yeah. and so on. As it turns out, you know, it could be that those things are fairly disruptive when you recognize that all the people you might have hurt or harmed to get that, and then you're going to do your life review. So, when does your life review occur? It occurs after typically the brain has flatlined. So it's, it's occurring in that realm of, you know, let's say consciousness without the body. So your consciousness can move around. Or at least without brain activity. Without the brain activity, yeah. yeah. But, and so that's occurring if you're going to die, like if it's not a near-death experience where you're going to come back. Mm. If you're going to die, it's occurring right before that moment of death. Before the consciousness departs the body. Before the, the consciousness departs. So, you, you know, you're going to be thrown heavily by the karma that you've created 
And then you're not paying attention when you enter that next dimension, mm -hmm. which, you know, by Buddhist standards is called the rebirth dimension, the dharmata, the movement from the death moment into the rebirth, the rebirth moment. The bardo. The bardo of rebirth. So you're thrown by your karma mm -hmm. from this lifetime heavily at the moment when you need to pay attention. So it's a very good way of really clarifying. You know, I grew up with why love. this stuff is, you know, not good. I grew up with a mother, a very devout Roman Catholic mother, who always said when anything went wrong or there was violence or greed or terrible things happening, she would always say to us, they'll, they're going to burn in hell or they're going to, you know, they're going to get theirs later. They might not get it while they're alive, but once they die, they're going to get it. There's no way, well, there's no escape, no escape. And she just always talked about that all through our, Catholic, our childhood. Very, Catholic, very Catholic talk. Catholic but, karma. Yeah, Catholic karma. Yeah. But that awareness, even, even when I was taking my mother through her dying process at the end of her life when she was in the hospital dying, she then you know, given everything, all the changes that were going on in the world and she hated Trump and all of this stuff, she just, she just took comfort in that. She took comfort that it would all get handled. They'd all go to hell. <laughs> she, <laughs> she found peace in that. And I, I watched that in my mother and it was medieval in a certain way, but also it gave her great comfort. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, the, again, it's a probably more subtle process. Than, oh, sure. You know, I mean, sure. I had the same kind of mother. Sure, sure. But any, you know, again, yeah. from a Buddhist perspective, anytime you hate, exactly, you're creating exactly. more hatred. Exactly. And so then yeah. that gets you back into yeah. the issue of your actions cycles in a direction <laughs> right. that will return you to hatred. But you know, because again, this information about life review is much more subtle oh, than you're sure. going to hell. Oh, but it sure, occurs you know. to me to ask about life review. So I'm having my life review and I'm revisiting all of these moments when I caused others happiness or unhappiness. Right. And I'm curious, so if I'm a capitalist, I may have hurt people in other countries that I've never seen, mm -hmm. you know, by my mining activities or something or mm -hmm. drilling oils and uh, all that sort of stuff or or war but how far will my experience of their subjectivity extend will it be people i really had a one-on-one -on -one relationship with or will it extend beyond well, the Dalai Lama says it goes way back well let me just say that i don't think we know yeah. but um what the buddha taught was it was your immediate bhavanga mm -hmm. It was the ones that were in your day-to-day -day life that you're most affecting mm -hmm. because they're essentially not separate from you. Mm -hmm. So all of your actions with them are counting much more than the people on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. However, you know, if you look at this research that's going on now beyond space-time, Don Hoffman stuff, uh, or you think about the, let's say, the mind of God being infinite subjectivity. Mm -hmm. So within the mind of God, all subjectivity is connected. And so then what you do to the subjectivity within your framework does have repercussions all the way out through the you know, mind of God. As much as it, it can within the materialist realm. Mind, yes, it can in yeah. the materialist. It, it reverberates there too. Yeah. But I don't, I think in terms of your karma, the way that you experience, like, how does the Gary 
consciousness experience what Gary did, you know, positive, negative, mm -hmm. in the life review. From what I've seen of the research on it, it's the immediate people that you've affected. And of course, the case that Bruce Grayson talks about uh, that is so incredibly illustrative is, you know, is a man who, you know, was, was dead as the result of a car falling on him and then they resuscitated him eventually. And he, and he in his life review, reviewed a moment where he punched somebody 32 times and he didn't know why that person was drunk and accosting him. But when he did the life review, he was inside of that person. That person's wife had just died. He was drinking because his wife had just died. And then he felt the blows of the 32. He was able to count them in the life review. Uh, the, the times that he punched the guy, he could feel the pain in his face. He could feel all of that. And he could also feel himself doing it. So it was in the immediate environment. Right. And, and in this case, he justified it because the guy caused him, the guy cursed at him, walked in front of his truck. So he justified his jumping out and hitting the guy because the guy had assaulted him. But what he did to the guy was way worse than what the guy had done to him. And so, I mean, I don't know how all the algebra of all that works out. But I think it's a good idea to start to pay attention to how you treat the people around you. Well, that's mindfulness. That's mindfulness. That's mindfulness. But, you know, and then the compassion towards them. Well, you underscore it, put quotes around it. Right, because you're going to be in them. Put it in neon. <laughs> you know, you're going to be in them. It helps. When you're it right helps. before your moment. It of, helps. Of, so, you know, so there, if you, if you follow these trends, which are coming from near-death studies, reincarnation studies, the um, beyond space-time, all of that, if you follow those trends along with whatever spiritual trends you might plug into, your fear of death should be about fearing how you may create suffering in your everyday life for others as well as yourself, but you're often you experience your own suffering. You may burn off that karma but the way that others may suffer as a result of your lack of consideration, kindness, truth with others, that you would begin to really look at your life carefully, and that's where life and death are not separated. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're always together, and this, this idea that even Alexander talks about, that we travel through lifetimes with what he calls a soul group. The Tibetans also call it, you know, it's a sort of, group of beings that you're refining your consciousness with from lifetime to lifetime. You rotate around in identifications, but you're, you're learning with that group. You're not inside of your body. You're not just in your bag of skin as a consciousness, but you're responsible for how that consciousness mm -hmm. acts. Also within the technology of spirituality, you have forgiveness, you have purification that also plays a role in all of this. It's, I guess in one way you could say you have to be very awake to be able to participate on that level. But that's interesting to me, that particular role of purification and, and you know, transmuting karma and, and forgiveness. Yeah, I mean, in an ordinary, everyday way, it affects, apologies, it reparations, you know, all of those things will also affect the ongoing development of what you 
are reaping and sowing. So there's always forgiveness, there's always repair, there's always apologies. And then, you know, within spiritual practices, you can go to higher realms to ask for forgiveness. Like you can ask from the gods or from God, or you can ask for forgiveness from others, humans. And then in the Buddhist world, there are 31 realms. So you have bodhisattvas, you have a lot of beings that can be forgiving. But even though the Buddha was enlightened, he still had karma that he was paying off mm -hmm. in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he had karma. That may be the mechanism. With, yeah, you know, he had karma he was paying off with. Yeah. He left his wife. Yeah. He left yeah. his son. I mean, that may be it. I mean, that might be the nature of <laughs> the nature of it. That's the, I think yeah. it is. I think it's the nature of space time and the universe. Yeah, that's um, how we, we're evolving and we're yes. yeah, becoming stardust again or something i don't i don't know but i think that you just mean what it. are we evolving to yeah where, where does yeah it i mean i do believe it's just personal for me but i do believe it and it, it it gives me a certain kind of quality in my life that that it's all the degree to which we can we can wake up and do this conscious consciously participate in this way that it's growing the universe that it's a benefit mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, That's, and I think that fits with the new science. Yeah, it's the, just, this yeah. kind of new science of consciousness yeah. is that yeah. the the universe is being generated by conscious beings. Right. And so we're conscious beings right. generating it. And that's more or less what the Buddha said too. Right. Right. I mean, as it turns out, he said, you know, in, within this body, we generate the world, the arising of the world right. and the ceasing of the world. And so we're generating it through our intentional actions, our speech, yes. and the way those affect this consciousness that's flowing from lifetime to lifetime. Yeah, consciousness emerging from consciousness. Yeah. In a yeah. never-ending cycle. Right, exactly. And then you realize, too, the, how dangerous the kind of materialistic view that you were talking about in the opening of, of our dialogue is to all of this. Yes. I mean, it's it's a terrible danger. Well, let's say it's a it's, sad product of human... A, yes, ignorance. Minds, or ignorance, yeah. I mean, you know, in a way I can understand it, how it evolved from... Well, you would because you're a psychologist. Well, well yeah. also, I mean, I would say I'm a scientist, you know. Oh, oh yeah. A developmental. <laughs> I'm a developmental psychologist. But, you know, it, I mean, so humans were asking questions, yes. you know, about how do we study this world? And so a lot of beings in Europe started separating out the objects so they can study right, them. You right. know, and it starts with the Greeks, really. We're trying to find something that's eternal here. So let's, let's look for an atom. Let's look for the smallest unit. And so more and more that develops, you start separating subject and object. And then we, we become a world in the West where we're studying the object, the world, from our subjectivity but we assume that they're split apart. That, so then we start acting on the object. That existence is saturated mm -hmm. with separation. Separation. It's the separation paradigm. And then the ultimate of the separation paradigm, I'm going to say, is mid-20th century. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that we're out of it yet. The 50s? The 50s, right after World War II, because there was a loss of belief in this bigger picture. It was like, if if... God existed, the Holocaust would not have happened. But I think that's a mistake to think that way. Mm -hmm. Because human beings create human environments. It's not God. Right. 
And, and so human beings acted in ways that were so delusional and distorted, believing an authority who said, I'm going to purify, or we're going to purify the races. But then, you know, that idea of purifying comes around again. We're in a time of contagion. And there was all of this anxiety about contagion that is fairly recent with the idea that we can eliminate viruses or we can purify ourselves of viruses. Why would we want to do or that? Or have a perfect screen of protection against them. The, yeah, and so why would we want to do that? Like, let's talk for a moment about what happened with COVID-19. I don't want to get into anything about the medical science of it because that's not our wheelhouse. But, you know, what do you see about people's behavior? How did people start behaving with each other as people? As, as the threat level rose, their thinking became increasingly, I want to say, limited. Well, I think there was extraordinary manipulation going on that confused people. They didn't know what to believe. I mean, authorities who, who, who were very important in their life were telling them one thing, somebody else was telling them something else, mm -hmm. and this massive kind of chaotic confusion took right. over. There was so much... And media and all these different voices. You had like a hundred voices speaking all at the same time, and nobody was hearing each other, and there was so much fear being created, and nobody could hear each other. Everybody was trying to find sides. Right. Part of it seemed to be that... The people I know that are the most thinking and intelligent, they would try to follow up all of this information right. and reconcile it, and right. it would make them crazy. Right. <laughs> so or we became, then we became pariahs in a sense because we were doing the research and we were questioning. Yeah. And we were risking doing all kinds of things. So let me say that most people put on masks and social distance. I'm, you know, I'm just sort of getting to the facts of it. Mm -hmm. And when you're putting on the mask and you're social distancing, you look upon your fellow human being as somebody who's contagious. A threat. That's the way it looks. Because in the past, people wore masks only when they were contagious. Like if you were in Asia, mm -hmm. you'd see people wearing masks only because they're contagious, not because they're well wearing a mask. So the signaling that was out there across the board right. was to look upon your fellow person as a contagious unit that you need to get away from. And there was no way to say to your fellow person, I'm well. And I saw this again and again, because people would say, how do you know you're well? Well, first of all, I'm not sick. I know when I'm sick, I know when I'm not sick. Oh, but you could be carrying some contagion. Well, I could be carrying contagion anytime about anything. Like why at this moment is this a special issue? And it's because you can't say you're well. In the past, you could say, well, I quarantined for 14 days, so I must be well. Now you've quarantined for 14 days, but you can't say you're well. So everybody is a potential contagion. So everyone looks upon other people that are outside of their social bubble as a potential threat. So you don't any longer relate to people in a kind way or in a courteous way. You you move away from them, or you say, you know, in the midst of a lot of this, people would say, step back, get out of my space, you know, don't reach, don't talk. And so that created a very different, very unkind feeling 
about being around other people. Mm -hmm. and, the, and as you say, there was a huge amount of confusion because a lot of people thought that was kindness. Well, it was to act like coming that. from an authority that, you know, people were trying to follow the rules. You know, and then it got, it just got so complicated in people's personal lives. You know, they were trying to do what they were doing, told, put on a mask. If you don't put on a mask, you can't come here. Or, you know, all of that. And, and the different stages we went through before we had the vaccines or, you know, ways of testing. Well, you know, I mean, there, we know now that the illness wasn't treated in its early stages. No, and not so at it should all. have been. I know. And because it Our is. Our medical system is. Well, we were, we were apparently set up in order to buy a lot of vaccines, and that was the setup. But, you know, be that as it may, a lot of ordinary people bought into the yes. paradigm. Yes. And uh, I think that one reason why ordinary people buy into paradigms that are destructive to humans is they're afraid of dying. And that, that fear of dying promotes a sort of small-mindedness. A narrow-mindedness. At a moment. It closes when, you down. When you're, yeah, when you're, when you're scared. You know, so you're getting scared That's about... a good point, Polly. You know, you're oh just my God. looking for those one or two things that will keep you alive, and you're not yeah. interested in And you might not even be aware that you're doing it. You know, like this unconscious force comes out of that fear, comes up for people. So, you know, I think that if we can shift this paradigm around death, right. if people can begin to recognize the continuity of consciousness, whether you have a spiritual practice or not, right. the science around this is very strong. And so if they can begin to recognize that the way they live their everyday life is not just, you know, sort of like the way Kubler-Ross said, the way you live is going to be the way you die, exactly. which I think is accurate, but it's not just that. It's what you create with the others that are close to you that you are going to experience when right. you're dying. Right. And that's going to throw you this way or that right. way. And that also brings up the whole relationship each one of us has to our own sense of responsibility and accountability. Well, yeah. how we live our lives. It's so your life is you, never separated from your right, death. Exactly. And so if you exactly. recognize how it's connected, yeah. then you might get a very precise right. guideline right. It's you helpful. Know, for, for how to live your life so that you're not so thrown in your death that you're thrown right. into something that right. is very painful and frightening. Right. And I think the more we're able to precisely understand, and I believe we are uh, on the road to precisely understanding. I think we are as well. What happens at the time of death and after death, the more we understand that, the yeah. more I believe we will find that we have to be a human species. We have to understand the kind of consciousness that is human, and we have to understand how to help it thrive. Right. And that there are other kinds of consciousnesses, but one thing that is true about the human is that we can be aware of our awareness. We can become mindful of our own behaviors. We can change right in midstream. We can do something a dog can't do. We can do something a cockroach can't do. There are a lot of things that dogs and cockroaches do that we can't do. They're probably more in a unitary consciousness than we are. I mean, are. I sometimes think, too, like, you know, to just really kind of be as present as I can with the fact that I am a homo sapien who aspires to be a better human being. Mm-hmm. 
right. that I don't just assume that I am a human being, that I, but I do assume I'm a homo sapien, but that I aspire to be a better human being. Well, you, and, you um, can become human. You can become, in, you can in, work. In a lifetime, a single lifetime, you can learn what it means to be human, you can learn to care for humans. If, you know, this is what I, if you can learn to work with conflict. Right. If you cannot learn to, learn to work with conflict, you're going to be destructive. There's just no question about it. Gee, that's um, a whole other podcast. Well, we've done, <laughs> we have done a lot of those. Well, we have, we've haven't, done a we, lot haven't, of haven't we? Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.